Can you think of anything that is good with potential to be better? Think maybe, for instance, of a car part, perhaps a brand new transmission. It comes off the line and it is a fine transmission. It's a good transmission, but it becomes even better when it's installed in a car and is actually utilized. The part is good, but it has potentiality in itself to be even better. Nothing wrong with the transmission when it comes off the line, but it becomes better when it's utilized. Or to give another example, consider the first few years of marriage. It's good for newlyweds to be married. Their marriage is intrinsically good, but it has the potential over time to become even better. These examples parallel in some way the state in which the world was created. The world was created already good. Look at chapter 1 verse 4. God saw that it was good. That the light was good. And verse 10. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12. And God saw that it was good. Verse 18. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25. And God saw that it was good. And verse 31. And behold, it was very good. And yet, the world had the potential to be improved. We see that in verses 26 to 28. To be even better. Let's explore that idea a little bit further this evening. Answering three questions which arise from Genesis chapter 1. Firstly, the question is, what exactly is good about creation? We read over and over and over again, seven times to be exact, that the creation was good. So what exactly is good about creation? The second question that needs to be answered is who gives creation its goodness? And then the third question that we have to ask is what hope is there that God's original purpose of improving the original creation will be realized? Those are the three questions we're going to seek to answer this evening as we look at Genesis chapter 1 together. So let's begin with the first question. What exactly is good about creation? Over and over we read it, it's unmistakable. And it was, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. It was very good. We can't miss the fact that the original creation was good. What exactly is good about creation? Light, order, and life are what make creation particularly good. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Like a potter, God first lays out the raw material from which he will shape and mold the world as we know it. Now to be clear, unlike a potter, God created the raw material from nothing. God didn't start with pre-existent material. God didn't find some material, God didn't gather material, and God didn't buy material. God created it from nothing. But as to God's method of creation, it seems that he created the world as a potter might create a work of art. God laid out the raw material as it were, and then shaped and worked and formed it into what he wanted it to be. So in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we read that there is matter already. In chapter 1 and verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Matter is already there. But what is not there is light, order, and life. 
And it is as God brings form or order in the place of without form. It is as God brings life to populate the void. And it is as God brings light to dispel the darkness that we read over and over in Genesis chapter 1. And it was good. The original, in verse 2, the original initial condition of existence was without form, void, and darkness. And as God brings form and life to populate the void and light in the place of darkness, we read over and over, it, God saw that it was good. As God sends light upon the world, we first read uh, in verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. As God distinguished and demarcated the land from the water, bringing order to the world, we read again, and it was good. As God brings plants forth from the land, life, right? In the midst of uh, the barrenness, all of a sudden we see plants coming up. We read, God saw that it was good, and so forth. It is light, order, and life that merit God's approval. Light, order, and life are what make creation good. Robert Candlish, a Scottish minister who helped me see this in Scripture, calls God's pronouncements of goodness, quote, the language of divine approbation, divine satisfaction, divine joy, divine congratulation, end quote. In other words, God is pleased with the work of His hands, which is full of light, order, and life. <clears throat> and God is so pleased with the work of his hands because it reflects his own character. Something that resembles God, who is himself inherently good, is also inherently good. Something that resembles the good one is itself good. Something that is like God, who is himself the definition of goodness, is also good, insofar as it accurately reflects and represents him. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, we read, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. It is for this reason that light itself is inherently good. Light displays something of who God is, and is therefore inherently good. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, we read that God is not a God of confusion. It is for this reason that order is inherently good. Order displays something of who God is and is therefore inherently good. In Romans 11:36, we read, From Him, that is God, and through Him and to Him are all things. In other words, from God all things exist. God has always lived and God is the author of life. He is the only eternally existent one and He is the only life giver. God is life. And it is for re this reason that life itself is inherently good. So this point is important to grasp. Not only are light, order, and life good because God says so, but also because they teach us something of who God is and what God is like. Even if God simply just said that light, order, and life are good, they would be good. Because God has the right to define what is good, unlike anyone else. Who can argue with God and call something bad that God has called good? Who can argue with God and call something good that God has called bad? So, 
If God just said that light, order, and life are good, then light, order, and life are, in fact, good. But in view of the rest of Scripture, which teaches us that God is light, which teaches us that God is a God of order, which teaches that God is life, we understand that in Genesis chapter 1, God didn't arbitrarily call light, order, and life good. God called light, order, and life good in Genesis chapter 1 because they accurately reflect something of who He is. So just hold on to that idea for now. It's going to be relevant later on, even if you can't see its significance just yet. The main thing I want to stress here, though, at this point, is that light, order, and life are intrinsically and inherently good. And not only in Genesis chapter 1, but in the rest of Scripture too, we see that God is pleased with light, order, and life. Everywhere else in Scripture, everywhere else, and I went through and did a word study, everywhere else, I can assure you, that light, order, and life appear. In any form in which they appear, they are spoken of in a positive sense. Everywhere else in Scripture. In Genesis 1, light is light. Literal light. Actual just light. And it is spoken well of. We read in verse 4, God saw that the light was good. In the rest of the Bible, light sometimes means literal light, but light also sometimes is used figuratively to represent goodness or truth. And in this way, light is spoken well of through the rest of the Bible. Consider the following examples. Psalm 43.3 Send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even, even where it says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, Right? The reason he masquerades as an angel of light is because light is good. And he wants to appear as if he's good. So literally everywhere in the Bible that light is referred to, light is a good thing. In Genesis chapter 1, order is the distinguishing, disentangling, and demarcating of boundaries between things that don't go together. As in the distinguishing of the land from the sea. In Genesis chapter 1, order is putting each thing in its rightful place. Birds in the air, plants in the ground, fish in the sea, etc. In Genesis chapter 1, order is the creation of predictable systems and processes. Plants reproducing after their own kind. Did you notice how many times? We've read it together now. Three Sundays. Genesis chapter 1. And, and as you read over and over, you start to notice things more and more. But how many times does it say... Uh, after their own kind, right? Plants having seed, bearing seed, you know, according to their own kind, right? Order in Genesis 1 involves the creation of predictable systems and processes. God has woven in predictable systems and processes, such as plants reproducing after their own kind, into the order of this world. So in contrast to the formlessness in which the earth was originally created, the form or order that God introduces into the world is inherently better. And this sort of order is spoken well of in the rest of Scripture too. Everywhere that disentangling and demarcating boundaries 
And ordering of ideas, ordering of moral boundaries, etc. occurs in the rest of Scripture. It's praiseworthy. Consider the following examples. 1 Corinthians 14.33, which I already alluded to, is part of a plea for orderly worship. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The chapter closes with this exhortation. Let everything be done decently and in order. God is pleased with orderly worship services. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 lays out that one of the qualifications of eldership is managing his household in an orderly way. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In the instructions for constructing the tabernacle and later the temple and in the example of Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem, order is presumed to be desirable and good. Everywhere else, in scripture that you see order it's a good thing and in Genesis chapter 1 the life which is called good is literally the first appearance of life before Genesis chapter 1 there were no life forms other than God life forms created life forms come into existence for the first time in Genesis chapter 1 and they're called good birds fish animals Plants, everything that God makes is called good in Genesis chapter 1. Throughout the rest of the Bible, life-giving involves reproduction, regeneration, and improvement of life. For example, John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says that I have come, not only that they may have life, but have life abundantly. He's talking about degrees of life. And always where life is given, where life is propagated, where life is improved, it's always referred to positively in Scripture. God's own command to Adam and Eve to reproduce in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 assumes the goodness of reproduction. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5, being made alive together with Christ is assumed to be a good thing. In John chapter 10, the improvement of the quality of life is assumed to be a good thing as Jesus distinguishes between merely being alive and being abundantly alive. So all of these things, light, order, and life, both in their literal form in Genesis chapter 1 and throughout the rest of Scripture in various forms, are good. Light, order, and life are good because God says so. He, he gives His stamp of approval seven times explicitly in Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. So God says so. But God says so because light, order, and life are things which are most consistent with His character. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion. 1 John 1.5, God is light. Romans 11.36, He is the originator of life. So what exactly is good about creation? Light, order, and life are what make creation particularly good. So we'll move to our second question now which is, who gives creation its goodness? The answer might surprise us, as our first instinct will likely be to say God. Right? But according to Genesis chapter 1, both God and man have a role to play in giving goodness to creation. Obviously, as we've already seen, God has given creation a certain inherent goodness, apart from any involvement of man. At creation, before man was even created... We read six times, before man ever came on the scene, 
six times we see that God said, and it was good. And a seventh after man was created, it was good. But God has given creation a basic goodness apart from man's involvement. Before Adam ever came on the scene, creation was good. But man was given the job of bringing further light, order, and life into this world. And that's why I said we see that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. God gave man the job of bringing further light, order, and life into the world. And if further light, order, and life come into the world, the world becomes, therefore, better, increasingly good. Look at verses 26 to 28. God made man in his own image, it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind is therefore designed to reflect something true about who God is. We are to illuminate for the rest of creation who God is and what he is like. We are to communicate something about God's, something true about God to this world. This is part of the lexical range of the word light in Scripture. Truth itself, as well as the promotion or the dissemination of truth, is called light throughout the rest of Scripture, as I demonstrated it a little bit earlier. And God commands man in uh, verse 28 to subdue and have dominion over the earth and its inhabitants. This is a command to bring order to the world. What is wild is to be brought into subjection. What is unkempt is to be cultivated. What is unusable is to be made suitable for us. What is disorganized is to be organized. And God commanded man to be fruitful and multiply, in verse 28, and to fill the earth. In other words, God commanded man to fill the earth with more image bearers who would cooperate together to image God to creation and to exercise stewardship of creation in an orderly way that promotes life and flourishing. So all of this is packed into verses 26 to 28 as we consider their implications. Remember at the beginning I said that God created the world good with the potential to be even better. Mankind was given the task of bringing further light, order, and life into a creation which was already endowed with a measure of light, order, and life. In other words, mankind was take, given the task of taking the already good world and making an already good world even better. Mankind was given the task of ruling over this world as God's representatives, with Adam at the head of the human race, following his leadership as he ruled over us to bring further light, order, and life to the world. Have we done this? <laughs> no. Can we really say that the world is a better place now than it was in the original state in which it was created? Is the world better now than it was on that seventh day when God finished His work of creation and rested? Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 go on to tell us that God threatened death to the first man, Adam, upon the breach of his law. And indeed, Adam sinned. 
And when he sinned, indeed, we died, just as God said. Jeremiah 4.23 talks about the effects of sin. That God looked upon the earth after seeing his people's sin. Listen to this. And behold, it was without form and void. Jeremiah 4.23 So the effects of sin is actually not to bring further light, order, and life into the world. The effects of sin is actually to move backward toward darkness and death and chaos. Now, in Jeremiah 4.23, that's an example of exaggeration to make a point. The earth did not literally go back to the way it was in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 before God said, let there be light. But there is a sense in which Adam's sin did in fact cause creation to revert back to its without form and void and in darkness state. Certainly Adam did not bring further light, order, and life into the world, but actually introduced darkness, chaos, and death into the world through his disobedience to God. And so now we come to our third question, which is what hope is there that God's original purpose of improving the original creation will be realized. If God gave man the job of improving and bettering the original creation, and we failed, then is that purpose abandoned? Have we forfeited the opportunity to realize the full potential of this created world? Again, the answer is no. In spite of our disobedience, all is not lost. For through... For though the fall, humanity's fall into sin through Adam, though that was a terrible event with horrific consequences, God has had a plan all along from before Adam even sinned. God planned before he created the first Adam to send a second Adam into this world to do what the first Adam failed to do and to bring creation to its originally intended purpose. Though the first Adam did not bring light, order, and life to the original creation, it was God's purpose all along that there would be a second Adam who would indeed bring to this world more light, order, and life than the original creation was endowed with. Christ Jesus is that second Adam, and he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Romans, pardon me, Revelation 13:8. Though God's decree included the fall of man into sin and the regression of the world into chaos, darkness, and death through the first Adam, God's decree also included the redemption of the world from sin through the second Adam. God's decree included both the failure of the first Adam in bringing light, order, and life into this world, but God's decree also included the success of the second Adam in bringing greater light, order, and life into this world. And this decree happened before the foundation of the world. In other words, God's plan wasn't foiled when Adam sinned. God's plan was simply unfolding when Adam sinned. It was a necessary part of the unfolding plan of God that the first Adam should fall in order to set the scene for the second Adam to come and to overcome. Jesus is not plan B, given after God's original plan failed in order to get things back onto course. 
Jesus is God's plan A. The second Adam coming to do what God knew all along the first Adam never would. To make this world better than it was in the beginning. To fulfill the creation mandate, which is what we read in Genesis 1, 26-28. Adam would never bring the creation mandate to fulfillment. God knew that and God decreed that. But God decreed that Christ Jesus, the second Adam, would bring the creation mandate to its ultimate fulfillment. Jesus will bring further light, order, and life to this world than it was originally endowed with. In this way, some have said, the history of redemption is not U-shaped, as if we were here, and then Adam sinned, and we came down here, and then Christ Jesus brings us back up here. Rather, the history of redemption is J-shaped. We were here, and Adam's sin brings us down here, and Christ Jesus brings us up here. Jesus will come as the second Adam and do what the first Adam did not do. Jesus will bring further light, order, and life to this world than the original creation was endowed with. He will make the end, as a pastor in the U.S. named Richard Barcellus has said, he will make the end better than the beginning. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who will put all of his enemies under his feet and bring order. Jesus is the one who is the resurrection and the life. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. He is the consummate image bearer, the exact representation of God. He tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about who God is. Jesus will bring order to the chaos as he returns to rule and reign forever in the new heavens and in the new earth in which righteousness dwells. After gathering all of his enemies out of his kingdom and tossing them into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus will bring life to his people, bringing us into eternal and unchangeable fellowship with the triune God through his life, death, and resurrection. For those who trust in Jesus, we are not looking forward to going backward to Eden. We're not looking forward to going backward to the precarious state in which Adam was originally created, simply a morally neutral state capable of falling away from fellowship with God. No, we are looking forward to eternal life in Christ's kingdom, clothed in His righteousness, won for us by His spotless life of obedience to God in the place of the first Adam's disobedience. We shall be clothed in Christ's righteousness forever and therefore free from the fear of condemnation. We are looking forward to eternal life in Christ's kingdom, free from the fear of death. For all the death that was required for our sin was experienced by Christ on the cross in our place. We are now able to look at the cross and see the demands of God's justice satisfied there so that after our resurrection and into eternity, we need never fear death again. We are looking forward to eternal life in Christ's kingdom under His rule as the second Adam, fulfilling the creation mandate and making us free from the thorns and thistles that are part of our cursed earthly existence here and now. Christ will bring order in the place of this present chaos and disorganization. Everything will be as it should be, where it should be, when it should be, and how it should be in Christ's eternal kingdom. So all hope is not lost. 
the original purpose for creation of the end being better than the beginning is not lost. Though Adam didn't get us there, and though we will not get ourselves there, Christ will get us there. Beyond simply helping us understand the biblical storyline better, what are some ways that these glorious truths apply to us? Consider first that our work is, or at least can be, intrinsically good. And that should help preserve us from discouragement. Are we establishing or maintaining light, order, or life in our vocations? If so, then it is good. The work that we're doing is intrinsically good. Let's think about light. From literally working in a light bulb factory to writing academic papers in an academic setting promoting a biblically consistent understanding of the way the world actually is, you can be creating light. By working for a printing press to designing web pages, you can be promoting the dissemination of true ideas or at least facilitating the pursuit of truth through interaction between ideas. By working as a school teacher or educating your children, you can be disseminating light. By discipling each other in the truth, we are intrinsically pursuing goodness as we are pursuing light. Any of these kinds of vocations, and obviously these are just examples, but any of these kinds of vocations are good. God looked at literal physical light and said it was good. God looks at the light of truth, right? Light in a metaphorical sense in the rest of Scripture and says it's good. Are we involved in the creation or the maintenance or the propagation of light in any form? If so, it is good work. Intrinsically good work. It receives God's stamp of approval, His approbation. The way that God looked at light in Genesis chapter 1 and said it was good. If you're involved in creating or maintaining or propagating light, God looks at the work you do every day and says it is good. Let's think about order. From literally pulling up weeds and mowing grass or putting things on the correct shelves all the way to enforcing the law as a police officer or an attorney or a judge, you can be creating and maintaining order. By helping people resolve conflicts as a friend, relative, or mentor, you are helping people disentangle the complexities of their lives and bringing order to chaos. Doing paperwork properly at work, showing up on time for meetings, washing dishes, returning calls when you say you will, by helping one another see where thorns and thistles are present in our lives and helping us pull those thorns and thistles up, weeding the garden either of our front yards or our backyards or the garden of our hearts, we are bringing order into this world. And just as in Genesis 1, God looked at order and saw that it was good, so God looks at work that we do in our daily lives, in our daily vocations, creating order or maintaining order and sees and says that it is good. Let's think about life. Doctor, an ambulance driver, a midwife, a mother, counseling against abortion, advocating for adoption, counseling against suicide and self-harm, sharing the gospel, 
in any of these ways that we're promoting life, any of, any of the ways that we're enhancing the quality of life, these things are good. When we're, when we're promoting human flourishing, these things are intrinsically good. I would venture a guess that every single person in this room, every single person in this room has a vocation in which either light, order, or life are created or maintained. I would venture a guess. And if you really think that none of those apply to you, come and talk to me afterward, and I'll try to help you see how, in some way, your life's work, in your daily vocation, you are creating or maintaining light, order, or life. What I want to draw out here is that there is intrinsic value in the creation, the maintenance, or the propagation of light, order, and life. And that should keep us from discouragement. That should fill our lives with meaning. That before there was ever sin in the world, before there was ever, therefore, redemption, before there was ever, therefore, redemption to be proclaimed, before there was ever evangelization to do, uh, before there was ever um, church churches to volunteer in, before there was ever preachers, before there was ever pastors, there was goodness in creation. Which means that it's not only so-called religious vocations and religious uh, tasks and activities which are good, but in our daily lives we can be doing things which are inherently good. So that should keep us from discouragement. But we should not be naive or idealistic about our lives either. We will not bring this world to even back to the state that it was in before sin, let alone making it even better than the state that it was in before sin. Let's be honest. You show up and you, you put all the paperwork in the correct places, you put all the things on the right shelves, right? And then you take a day off and then you come back and it's like, man, everything is on the wrong shelf. <laughs> and the paperwork is all in the wrong places. And it's like, oh, what is even the point? Right? Or we, you know, we, we write something or we teach something true and then people misunderstand it or people don't receive it and they argue with it and they, you know, and you think, what is even the point of me saying this? It's, it's going nowhere, right? Or, or you say as a, as a paramedic or as a, as a doctor, you do everything that you can to preserve life. You do everything that you can to save life and foster life, and yet people die, right? There is a certain futility. Now that we have fallen into sin, there is a certain futility to the way that this world is. And we can't reverse that and undo that even by our best efforts. And so, though we should, and, and, and this is important, though we should continue to pursue life, order, and life in our vocations because it's intrinsically good, because light, order, and life receive the smile, as it were, of our Creator. We should pursue light, order, and life. And that should keep us from being discouraged. But we should not be naive and think that we're just going to usher in this new blessed state 
in this world where by our efforts at light, order, and life, we're going to fix this broken world and make it better than the beginning. We shouldn't be naive about that. It's not going to happen. There's a book written by Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung called What is the Mission of the Church? And one of the things that they try to point out is that it is God who establishes Christ's kingdom. We don't actually establish Christ's kingdom. We enter Christ's kingdom. We proclaim Christ's kingdom. We pray for its advance. We preach. But it is the Spirit of God working by the power of the Word of God who establishes Christ's kingdom. And eventually it will be Christ himself who returns from heaven to fix everything and make everything new. So what they're trying to get away from is this mentality that the church's mission is to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And they show, they make the exegetical case from the Bible that we actually are not supposed to be establishing the kingdom of God here. What we're supposed to be doing is proclaiming the kingdom of God here. Right? So we go out into our vocations and we live lives that are pleasing to God by bringing light, order, and life into our various vocations. And as we do that, we are living in a way which is consistent with the kingdom of God, which is full of light, order, and life. And as we go about our daily business, we're proclaiming that the kingdom of God has already been inaugurated and is on its way to being fulfilled and consummated. We proclaim the return of Christ who will come and make all things new. But we don't have this misguided agenda that literally by our own efforts we're going to be able to do this. The church's um, uh, role is limited. Uh, we're not able to actually be the savior of the world. We're actually not able, uh, either individually nor together, even if we all had some sort of global initiative where all the churches around the world somehow got together. Maybe we designed a, a great web page and got all the churches around the world to sign up. Let's all bring light, order, and life to this world. And we had the greatest speakers, you know, bringing all these powerful biblical messages about light, order, and life. And we all prayed and asked God to help us and empower us to bring light, order, and life. We still would not be able to undo the effects of sin in this world. We are waiting for Christ Jesus to return from heaven to undo the effects of sin and to bring further life, order, and life into this world than this world has ever seen. So on the one hand, we can and we should work to promote light, order, and life in our various vocations. And as we do that, we should understand that our work has intrinsic worth and intrinsic dignity and is intrinsically pleasing to God as we pursue light, order, and life. So we keep putting the paperwork in the right place. We keep putting the things on the right shelf. We keep changing diapers. We keep washing dishes. We keep doing all of these things which are intrinsically good, intrinsically pleasing to God. And knowing that they are pleasing to God, we are kept from discouragement. But at the same time, we recognize that we are awaiting a Savior from heaven. And we're not naive that tomorrow we're going to wake up 
and we won't need to wash dishes anymore and we won't need to do paperwork anymore and we won't need to put things on the right shelf anymore because we did all that yesterday and it's done. We're, we realize that thorns and thistles continue to spring up and as we keep pulling them out of the garden, they keep springing up. And so we're waiting for a savior from heaven who is the one who will fully and finally bring the light, order and life into this world that it was always intended to have. We look to Christ himself to put his enemies under his feet, to take dominion and to rule and reign in a kingdom of light, order and life. And we do not lose heart for according to God's decree, he will and he shall do it. We will yet see the original creation purposes fulfilled in Christ Jesus.